0: Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Happy Tuesday. Today's guest is one of my personal go-to financial experts when I'm writing articles or need some fact-checking. I turn to this guy. Yes, financial experts have financial experts just like doctors have doctors, although my guest is a lot more knowledgeable when it comes to investing and financial planning. He's a certified financial planner. His name is Jeff Rose. Jeff is a self-made millionaire. He's the founder of GoodFinancialSense.com. As I mentioned, he's a certified financial planner. He is the CEO of his own wealth management firm, Alliance Wealth Management, and he's the author of the bestseller, Soldier of Finance, and host of the podcast, Good Financial Sense. He's also a husband and dad of three super cute boys. Three takeaways from our interview today with Jeff. His time as a soldier in Iraq and how that led him to being a financial advisor and advocate today why Jeff does not believe in target date funds. It's a little contrarian. And how he purposely takes off time from work to advance his work. It's an interesting uh, concept, and I think I'm something that I'm going to look into myself. Lots more headed our way. Here we go. Unleashing Jeff Rose. (music) Jeff Rose, soldier of finance. Welcome to So Money. Great to have you.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Okay, so listeners, some fun facts about Jeff. Um, he loves In-N-Out Burger, which, I mean, who doesn't? Obsessed. Um, obsessed. Uh He can deadlift over 500 pounds, hot. And you you may have threatened to punch some other financial advisors in the face. I got this off your blog. So can you expand on that last part? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, It's actually one of the most fun blog posts and now podcasts, and I'm actually soon to turn it to a video uh, that I've ever done, is I've been a financial advisor for over 12 years, and over the years, I've just ran into a lot of situations where clients have dealt with (laughs) some pretty shady advisors, and anything from – offering guaranteed returns of 12% to mm. not disclosing to them that they just signed you know, – invested into a annuity contract that has a 10-year uh, you know, contract period that includes a surrender charge to everything in between that. And all these different situations, it literally just wants to make me punch these people in the face. Now, I'm not a violent person for the most part. I've never been in a fight in my entire <laughs> life, so I probably wouldn't legitimately punch them. Um, but I might at least, at least give them the stink eye.
0: Yeah, or you could just pick lift them up and troll them around like you do. Yes,
1: that, that too.
0: <laughs> well, let's start at the beginning, Jeff. I want to talk all about your philosophies, your own personal failures, some of your uh your ideologies around money and and, and practices. But first let's start at the beginning. Not super not like Jeff in diapers yet, but Jeff in college. <laughs> you like I majored in finance. And also uh, graduated, not feeling like you really knew much about investing, ironically. So what? when did the breakthrough come for, co- arrive for you? When did you, um, why did you decide to learn about investing? And, and why did you try to, uh, you know, become someone who ultimately helps others? What made you passionate?
1: Yeah, great question. And it all started for me. As you mentioned, I was a finance major I had landed an internship at a local investment firm in the, the college town that I reside. And just, and the only reason I got an internship there is because I needed something on my resume. You know, at the time, yeah, I was working almost full time in college. I had the military, you know, being the National Guard, but I didn't have any really anything else on my resume. So I landed an internship, made a good impression. They end up offering me like a part time job while I was in college and basically just doing more shredding and filing and, mm-hmm. you know, clerical stuff. And they end up making me a job offer as a junior broker. And I declined it because I had no, I didn't really have an interest in it because I still didn't get it, what it meant to be a financial advisor. And this is back in the dot-com bubble era and, you know, pre-2008 financial crisis. But the job market shrank in that time frame as well. So all these job opportunities I thought I had fell apart. So I ended up landing, I ended up accepting the job as an advisor just because I didn't have anything else out there. And it was about three months into being an advisor or like just trying to be an advisor, I remember meeting with a couple that was almost two times, at least twice my age, maybe two and a half times my age. So at the time I was 24, they were at least in their, you know, fifties, probably going on 60. And I remember meeting with them, and they had total savings I recall was like around 30 or 40 thousand dollars.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's all they had, and I could just see just the desperation and just it was there i mean they knew that they weren't going to be able to retire that they were going to be struggling for the rest of their lives and it was like one of those outside body experiences where at that time i could just hear my parents always telling me oh you need to save you need to save and i never knew what that really meant because they never could really show me or you know instruct me how but at that point in time i knew that i did not want to become this couple and I was going to do everything in my power to not become that couple. And also, too, how can I educate others to not end up like they are?
0: So what happened with this couple? Were you able to help them?
1: No. I mean, they were in their early, like I said, early 60s. And I said, you know what? You're probably going to be working at least till 70 to, you know, draw the most you can for Social Security. But at that point in time, there was little that I could do because they didn't really have the income to really boost their savings uh, to, you know, save that much more. But, you know, they were going to try But I think they were hoping to retire, you know, a little bit earlier than sooner. And I was like, you know, it ain't going to happen. It's Mm -hmm. it's at least going to be until seventy to make sure you get full Social Security.
0: So now help me with the timeline. I understand you were also deployed in Iraq around 2005, 2006. Was that before you landed this job as an advisor or was that after?
1: Yeah, so I was already in the National Guard. Mm -hmm. Uh, I joined the Guard to basically help pay for school because my my parents didn't have a lot of money, so I had to take care of myself. So I joined the Guard and I was in the military for almost, uh, let's see, six years up until the point in time that I got the job. So I got the job as an advisor and I was an advisor for almost two and a half years and that's when I got deployed. And I got deployed and then was gone for about a year and a half and then came back and resumed my position as an advisor.
0: And I, I understand that while you were in Iraq, uh, one of the mantras there was never get complacent, um, which has probably rung true in your financial life several times. and. There, you talk about how you also met fellow soldiers who were not using their finances wisely. And so that was another kind of wake-up call or at least a an aha moment for you, perhaps.
1: Oh, I see it all the time. I, I was so excited. Um, so I was the weirdo uh, deployed to Iraq trying to convince all my fellow soldiers to open up Roth IRAs you know, and start investing some of the money that they were making because a lot of these guys, this is the most money they've made in their entire lives, and if they could at least get some of that saved up in a Roth IRA to have that grow tax-free, I mean, I was so excited for them, and a lot of them did get signed up. A lot of them did get started, and unfortunately, by the time we came home, a lot of them ended up cashing it out to I don't know what. Um, but on top of that, you know, a lot of the guys, we uh, if they enlisted over there, if they were in that time window they could qualify for a realistic bonus, which was like, I think, fifteen or $20,000, uh, which is tax-free since we we're overseas, which you know, is a lot of money for a lot of people. Uh, you also had to re-enlist for another six years. That was the other huge part of it, <laughs> and why I didn't uh, go for the bonus. But I, I, I'm not all of them, but I would say 70, 80% of those that re-enlisted overseas that got that bonus had that money spent before they even got home. Uh, How did they spend
0: it what were where do you even have when do you even have time to spend that money I mean
1: I... <laughs> when you got downtime in the evenings <laughs> and we had internet connection there mm-hmm. were guys ordering harley's you know oh by my uh, gosh. The, their wives were already like uh, they had the kitchens like being uh, you know redone I mean it, it was gone before they even got back
0: wow that's Quite the documentary, like the shopaholics that are deployed overseas, and you know, like what are they? Where are they surfing online? The top websites.
1: <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of. Uh, let's see, I mean, Amazon obviously was pretty big, and then there were just people. It was, it was. A, you wouldn't believe how many packages would come delivered to our base that were bought from online
0: purchases. It was oh my pretty gosh, crazy. that's cray cray. Okay, um, before we get into the so many questions, I have to ask you because I. Uh, I have a lot of guests on the show that believe in things like passive investing, indexing, target date funds. You're a contrarian when it comes to this. You don't believe, I've read, in um, target date funds. Why? And does that also mean you don't believe in, in passive investing?
1: <laughs> am, I, am I like the, the oddball out here? Kind
0: of. <laughs> yeah, you're kind of the oddball. So I'm giving you the stage to kind of yeah. give, give us your case.
1: Okay, so we want to talk about target date or index or both. Kind of lumped all together.
0: I mean, if you feel that there is a common, if you have a common sort of uh, disbelief in them, um, sure, let's let's bundle them. But if it's very specifically target date funds, because I read that was the article that you wrote, then yeah. maybe we focus on that specifically.
1: So with target date, you know, really quick, a lot of times I see with target date funds, and there are some exceptions, but for the most part, a lot of target date funds consist of eight to, say, 12 to 15 different mutual funds inside those target date funds. And within those funds, there might be some decent funds, but typically there's going to be at least four, five, six, maybe more that are just okay average funds, and they're all kind of lumped together in this one target date fund. And what I've seen is that if you're able to go in and actually cherry pick and hand-select those funds you're going to get much more return and with also reducing the cost because you're not incorporating all these other, the, the overall wrapper cost of the target day fund. Now, that being said, that's, it's easier for investment advisors like myself to go in and do the research and make those selections, but that's why I always encourage, you know, investors that don't have that information handy to them is to find an advisor that can help them choose that. And like I said, does that apply to all 401k plans? No, but a lot of the ones that we've worked with, over the years, I mean, it's like it's probably happened at least nine out of every ten times that we see a target date fund it's just is not that good.
0: So, if you are working with a financial advisor who's putting a lot of your money in target date funds, is that a red flag?
1: I'd say it's. I want to just know why. You know, just yeah. give me the reason. Show me why you are choosing this fund versus you, you know doing a, a, a cherry pick method. Is it just because they don't want to take the time? To do the research for you and like, oh, this is the easy approach. We're just Which is what you're paying fund. them for. Which you're paying them for exactly. Um, so I mean, that's what I see a lot is the fact that they either just doesn't really want to take the time to do the research on the behalf. Like, so, oh yeah, that looks good. Do that target A fund.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so I see that a lot. Okay. Now, when it comes to index investing, now if 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 you're not investing at all, you know, index investing obviously is the way to go. Um, for me, what what it was hard for me to Fully dive onto that because when I start looking at uh, individual mutual funds and ETFs and active managed strategies, you know I don't know what the the stat says, but I mean, commonly you'll hear that active managers do not outperform passive investing, and I don't know what the stat. I've seen different stats. You know, I I, I think the highest I ever saw was like 87% of the time, if I recall correctly. And my argument to that was, okay, that's 8 percent of the time. Well, what about the 13% of the, the managers that actually do outperform the market and do so on a consistent basis? They do exist. They are out there. Uh, they might be a little bit harder to find, uh, but they do exist. And I see them. I see them all the time. You know, I can log into uh, Thomson Reuters or Morningstar and see these active managers that have consistently beat the market year after year after year. And they're out there. But it's just not as maybe easy to find for an investor. So, for me, it's it's hard for me to just jump on board of passive investing because I see mutual funds that have done that, and yes, they are charging more than your Vanguard funds. But you know, just because they're charging more, they're still able to net more for the client.
0: Yeah, I so suppose that, that's my camp. Yeah, I, I totally get it. But you're you're experienced. You're not a novice. You're not the average investor, and I think most people are average investors. Um, So for them to, A, be able to um, themselves try to do something that is outpacing the market or hire someone that they believe can do that, that's not that easy. And it could take some trial and error. Um, But I hear what you're saying. I mean, obviously to say all active investing is bad or all passive investing is good, there has to be some give and take. Hello? Oh, yep. <laughs> Sorry. So you you cut out just a tad and I was Did like I thought you had another me? another really No, no, solid that was it. it. That was it. Okay. That was it. Um, I'm done with my uh my, my <laughs> getting off my soapbox now. Jeff, what's your financial philosophy if you had to distill it in, in a sentence or two?
1: Man, uh, you you mentioned the whole, you know, not being complacent with your financial situation. I think another one that I I really uh, take to is we often hear that money can't buy happiness and there there is some truth to that, but I think kind of like the newer age extension of that is you know money can't buy happiness, but it can sure help <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's something that I've recognized in my own life is you know as a financial advisor, as an entrepreneur, as my business has grown, you know as our income has increased, you know it yes, there's certain struggles that come along with that, but there isn't a lot of the worries that we used to have from, man, how are we gonna pay that bill or Oh dang! Like I got a flat tire, or somebody rear-ended me. Now I've got to, you know, go get my car worked on. You know, those those type of issues don't bother us like they used to. Or you know, our health insurance—we just had to change that. Now our premiums going up, and our, you know, our copay, or we don't have a copay anymore, or deductible you know, through the roof. We don't worry about that like we used to when you know my wife and I first got married and had our first kid.
0: Right, and you now you've so, three so kids, thinking.
1: and now we have three kids exactly. And so, you know, we recognize that money is not the root of of everything, but it's also not the root of evil, but, you know, it definitely does help. So that's why we're always looking for opportunities to invest. You know, that could be investing in the traditional markets or investing in our business or investing in other opportunities, you know, that will yield other sources of income.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I would even go so far as to say money can buy happiness if you spend it right. Yes. (laughs) I mean, yeah, if you're buying shiny objects with it, if you're buying um, Harleys while you're deployed on Iraq, chances are that's going to lose its luster after you get back, uh, shortly after you get back. But, uh, you know, going on vacation, investing in yourself, investing in your kids, investing in your family, um, you know, donating even can make you happy. So I think that there are a lot of smart ways where money can lead to. Uh, An increase in happiness. I would dare to say that. And I think there have been studies that might back that up. Now let's go back to Jeff and diapers. Um, Let's go back to as far as Jeff, little Jeff. I would like to ask my guests, what's your earliest money memory? What did you learn? And has it shaped the way that you think about money as an adult?
1: You know, unfortunately, I wasn't in diapers. Uh
0: (laughs) I suspected that wouldn't have been the earliest memory. Not many people can remember that stage. For me
1: the, the 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 earliest money memory I had and it was actually in college and it's funny it took that long I guess to have a lasting money money memory impact but I recall I was in my finance was it 301 or 30 something 341 class and this is before I even understood like really the power of compounding interest and uh, and just investing you know over the long haul and I remember my finance professor asked this question, he asked the question of the class, how many of you expect to, you know, buy a brand new car every three to five years? And at the time, I was fully convinced that I was going to get a corporate job and I was going to drive a BMW because that's what I wanted. And 'cause I was driving a ninety six grand damn four-door uh, at the time. So when I graduated college, I got a job, I was driving a BMW, you know, no questions about it. So nice. I, I was one I was one of the first ones to shoot my hand up, like, yes, that's me. <laughs> And he said, like, all right. So for those of you that plan on driving a, a you know, new car for three to five years, enjoy your car payment as I take when I take my family on a European vacation. You know, every three years or something, or every year or something like that. And that got my attention because, like, okay, where is he going with this? And it just, you know, he started just showing, you know, if you took that car payment and reinvest, you know, invested it, you know, what that would grow to be. And that was it was a game changer for me because." Once I graduated, uh, so my grandmother passed away. She had a 1998 Chevy Lumina, which was even more of a grandma car than my Pontiac. Well, I, she passed away. No one else the family wanted it, so I inherited it. I ended up taking my Pontiac GM, selling it, you know, selling that, using that to pay off some of my student loan debt, and then I drove a 1998 1998 Chevy Lumina, uh, champagne colored four door with a cassette player, for the first two or three years of my financial planning career. And the reason I did it is because it was paid off and everything that would have went toward the car payment, I was able to use to invest in my 401k in my Roth IRA.
0: Right on. How is that Chevy that was that? It was a smooth ride,
1: right? Yeah. I, I, not really. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Trade-offs.
0: Trade-offs, Jeff. Trade-off.
1: Trade-off. But that was huge for me because if I knew – if I not – been in that class, I, if I would have inherited that car, what I would have done prior to that was I would have sold a Pontiac, I would have sold the Lumina, and I would have used that money for the down payment on a BMW. Like, I know myself, I know what I would have done. But instead, I didn't, and I had the freedom to invest more than I ever would have at, at a young age, and you know, that got me started off of, uh, you know, to where I'm at today.
0: Fantastic story. Okay, not to be a, a Debbie Downer, but what was your biggest failure? You've you've shared a lot of nice, uh, successful stories for us. We'll talk about your so moneyest moment, but what would you say is your so not moneyest moment? <laughs> like a really, uh, it doesn't have to be tragic, but just something that you were like, oh man, what was I thinking?
1: Um, I'm going to give you two options, and you choose the one that you think you'd be most interested in hearing about. Okay. So we ha- we have the five thousand dollar pay stock debacle or the eight thousand dollar business venture that ended up losing more money later on.
0: Oh my gosh! Well. I don't know. Let's do the, let's do let's go for the big one. The eight thousand dollar business invest, poor business investment is that the one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's so do
1: I had just uh, basically went purely independent. So I used to work for a big brokerage firm, and I left, and I went independent, which allowed me to do a little bit more untraditional like marketing, especially with my blog and stuff. You know what you're familiar with so I had came across this opportunity to represent uh, offering solo 401ks to other small business owners like myself. And the investment was $8,000 to basically get the training to go through it to how I could be a representative of this company to offer their product. And so I had one of those sales calls that was mass as a strategy session. And at the end of it it was like, hey, typically this is twelve thousand dollars, but if you act today, right. you can get it for eight thousand dollars. So anyway, it was and I, I was sold, like I was sold. But I was like, you know what, this is a lot of money, you know, for, for myself and without at least talking to my wife, you know, let me get her thoughts on it. And you know, she listened to me and this is probably before we she truly understood my personality from me being what I call a quick start. And uh, so she, you know, but she gave me the thumbs up. She thought, you know what, it sounds like it's good for your business. Like, you know, go for it. So with that, um, I also got my own solo 401k because I had my business. So I went to the training and then I recognized the training wasn't as easy and straightforward as they said it would be. And then you had to invest more money into actually getting the business set up. And it, it just wasn't a plug and play system. And I ended up not doing anything with it whatsoever. So that was $8,000 basically down the drain. And then, as I mentioned, I ended up losing more money out of it because the 401k that they set up for me, Mm. uh, not to get too technical, but the plan documents were not set up correctly. And I found out two years later that I had to pay another 401k representative to basically go in and fix it. Mm. Um, So I ended up losing more money out of the deal. And the, the big takeaway, what I learned was, is that every opportunity that comes across you is not something that you have to jump in head first um, take some time think about it truly think about what you're trying to accomplish with this if it's something that you have to jump on right then and there it might not be an opportunity worth jumping in
0: right if they're pressuring you to to take on this opportunity they're they're feeding off of your Uh, adrenaline, I think that's a red flag. And uh, is this someone you would say you would want to punch in the face?
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is why we want a drop kick. (laughs)
0: Yeah, you want a drop kick. Um, Man, I'm sorry that happened to you. And I mean, it sounds like I mean, this is this is what's scary about it. It's like, you're educated. You, you know, you have street smarts, and this, yet, this still happened. But I think you just cut your losses. You know, I would say this, you could chalk this up to, you know what, I, 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 you were lucky in that you identified that this was going downhill quickly and that you just, you know, rather than investing more and more and more in it, which is what they would have wanted you to do, you were like, ah, I gotta go. I gotta get out of here.
1: Yes, and I think the other big takeaway for me is that, whether it's an $8,000 business venture or, you know, a late credit card payment or a balance check, I mean, there's all these little things. Like, We're always going to come across adversity in our lives. And that situation can either derail you or you can swallow your pride, you know, suck it up and move on. And I could have let that derail me, but I didn't. You know, I, I kept pushing forward, kept pursuing. I found other opportunities that have, you know, paid back 10x that. So it was uh it was tuition, you know that was a learning experience uh you know, and I've learned a lot from it, and I know from that experience, I know that I won't hopefully end up in that same situation again yeah, my wife won't let me actually
0: <laughs> <laughs> good wife, good wife um all right, let's talk so money, moment. what's your number one ultimate so money moment? you just killed it financially. You're a self-made millionaire. Maybe it was when you have made your first million. I don't know. Just not to put words in your mouth, but I'd love to hear something along those lines.
1: So if I just won the lottery, I mean, or?
0: No, just, did you win the lottery?
1: Oh, no, no. You're asking for a You want me, like, you want a good moment now. Yeah, like, yeah, want yeah. To, like, go focus on the positive.
0: Right. A so-money yeah. moment.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think for me, I think the, when I think about, so obviously it wasn't the $8,000 business venture, but. For me, whenever I left my old brokerage firm and went to basically start my own business, there was a lot of risk involved, and that was a tough one. Because I, as I mentioned before, you know, I was I was an advisor. I left, went to Iraq, came back, and while I was gone, there was an advisor that uh, he's the one that hired me. Uh, he's the one that took care of my clients while I was gone. I mean, he was a father figure to me. And it just, but at a recent point in time in the business where, you know, my old broker broker's firm was bought out, and it just wasn't what I had signed on for. Uh, he had drank the Kool-Aid. He was not going anywhere. But I knew it was good for him because he'd been in the business for a lot longer than I had. But it really wasn't good for me. So I had to make the tough choice to leave. And that was a very hard decision. Um, and not only that, uh, he and a few other people I worked with, that I truly valued their opinion, told me that I was, quote, making the worst decision of my life.
0: Oh, man. Stop the drama. <laughs> yeah.
1: But when you are, you know, in your early 20s and, you know, and you're impressionable, I mean, you know, that hurt. I mean, those yeah. words hurt. Yeah, of course. But, but it also gave me the fuel to prove them wrong. Mm-hmm. And... A lot of times, people, when you leave a big broker, brokerage firm and you go independent, it's seen as, like, you couldn't make it or, you know, you, you couldn't hack it, so you got to go to the independent side. And within two months of me leaving, I made more money that month than I ever had in the previous five years.
0: Are you kidding?
1: I'm not kidding. It, they, they told our, our recruiter that said, hey, if you – typically within 90 days, you can tell if it's – going to be a better fit. I could tell after the second month. Wow. And that's when I knew, that's when I knew. And so where I'm at now, I would never, if I would have stayed, I would never be more close to where I'm at today.
0: I love that story. Get out of your comfort zone, embrace the negativity and turn it into something really positive and use it as fuel to get what you want. And oh my gosh, that that's quite the turnaround. That's a dramatic turnaround. Good for you.
1: It was fun. That still gives me chills thinking about it. and <laughs> Rehashing it.
0: What What would you say is uh, as a financial advisor and as a as someone who um, obviously takes good care of his own family finances? What is your number one financial uh, habit? Something that you do consciously and regularly to to manage your money wisely.
1: So I think you know, for the most important thing with our you know, so my wife, she's an online business owner. As you mentioned, we have three boys. Uh, you know, I've got my practice. I've got my blog. I mean, we're a pretty active household, and the one thing that we do, and you know, recognizing that communication is key, you know, for any successful relationship, is you know, we have what we call like our monthly money chat, and it's just a way to hey, how are things going? How is our savings looking? How is our Uh, in in retirement looking out, you know, are we, we we got this coming up, we're going on vacation, you know, do we have enough in our savings account? Because we have multiple savings accounts for different buckets and all that stuff? So it's just to say, hey, how are we doing? You know, is everything looking good? Are we spending a little bit more than we should? Do we need to cut back here? And it's just something that, you know, we we recognize that we need to do that uh, on a regular basis. And, you know, weekly for us, it probably just wouldn't happen. So, you know, we just have uh, a monthly money chat. And it's something like we don't put it on the, the calendar or anything. It just kind of happens. But, uh, you know, we'll probably just spend 30, 45 minutes just kind of looking over the, the bank accounts and the investment accounts and just making sure that everything is where it needs to be.
0: You have three kids. So what would you say is the is the biggest expense that you have um, that relates to parenting? I'm, I've got a 13-month-old, so I've, I'm not where you are um, but I'm curious, like, what's my future?
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, it's in the beginning, it wasn't that bad, just because I mean, I obviously you got diapers and formula and all that stuff. And uh, what I'm seeing now is when we travel, you know, like we go on vacation or we. Like you take taking three boys to the movies, for example.
0: Oh yeah, of course. You know, and you think about popcorn
1: and candy and and bottled water that's like four dollars a bottle. Because <laughs> um, they only give you like little Dixie cups, and you can't bring your bags, own food like and every, drinks. Yeah, I mean, you can maybe smuggle it in. Not necessarily really work <laughs> good for a, a dad, but you know, mom's got a big purse, you know, yeah, like exactly. loaded up.
0: Sir, can you please unload your pockets?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think it's that you know, and I just took my boys uh we actually didn't get in there, but we were we were in Atlanta this past weekend, I was trying to take them to the aquarium, and it was like forty dollars per kid no to get into the aquarium, get you know like out. I think it was yes, you know, and that's not we haven't got in the door yet, so I mean we get in the door and then they're probably gonna want a snack or a drink or and then a, a stuffed whale, or who knows what <laughs> the
0: and whale show, yeah, that's an extra yeah. you know sixteen dollars, yes. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, so I think gosh. those are the biggest expense that we see. It's you know, it's just the you know eating out or um, just traveling and stuff because, you know you got to eat, and that just adds up pretty quick.
0: Yeah, and I bet now with the summertime, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, downtime, so you got to fill up that downtime. And, you know, things cost money. That's okay. I need to start a separate bank account just for that. I think. <laughs> All right, yeah. let's let's do. It's, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay, so um, now we can talk about what you would do with a million dollars. Uh, this is our So Money fill-in-the-blanks, and I start off a sentence and you finish it. Are you ready?
1: I'm ready.
0: Okay, so if I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say just $100 million gets dropped off on your front door, the first thing I would do is?
1: Tithe. I'd give $10 million away immediately.
0: All right. Any particular – will you give it back to your church? I would. Yeah. The one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is
1: my uh, strategic coaching program.
0: Hmm. Your particular program, or uh, are you a member of a program? I'm a
1: member of of the strategic coaching program. So
0: Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, is it like a is it mostly business coaching? Is it is it life coaching? Yeah,
1: it's uh, it's market, or I guess it's geared towards entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. and it's something that's actually I just wrapped up my fourth year. And prior to that, I wasn't really familiar with coaching at all. I, I thought it was kind of like funny, like, oh, you have a coach? What do you right. need to coach for? And I me I about your kinda, feelings. <laughs> yeah, right. Tell me how you feel. Right. <laughs> and I was just at a point in my business where, I mean, I was successful, but I just felt like I wasn't, I didn't know what I was working towards. You know, I just felt kind of lost a little bit and I just felt I needed something and through a random recommendation, through somebody I met online, uh, they referred me to this program, and uh, I, I've been in it for four years now, and it's been one of the best business investments I've ever, I've ever done.
0: What's been the one thing you've learned from this that you wouldn't have figured out on your own? I think
1: one part, the, the big thing, I mean, there's revenue, there's all these other factors, but the one thing they asked us in the first session was, how many free days have you taken in the past year? And a free day is defined in their language is a 24 hour period where you do nothing work related. No email, no reading, uh, you know, any financial journals or anything, nothing work related. And for me, the financial plan practice, it's easy for me to shut that off, you know, on the weekends I don't meet with clients on the weekends. But with my blog, which we know is open 24 seven, mm-hmm. I mean, I worked on that every single day, even for, for 20, 30 minutes, you know, I was working on it. So when they asked me the question, how many free days have I taken? The answer was zero. I didn't take a free day, and I don't know how long. So now I'm much more intentional about unplugging on the weekends, or you know, purposely taking days off on occasion during the week. Like say on a Wednesday or Thursday, say, "Hey, family, we're going to go to the zoo." You know, I'm going to like disconnect my email and tell my assistant, "Hey, I'm. You text me if it's an emergency, but if not, I'm I'm not here." And that's been a game changer for me.
0: And it, and it has helped you with your business, as it turns out, right? Because you're able to kind of free your mind and be exposed yes. to, like, just new experiences and appreciate other things other than just what's, what's in front of you and, and work, work, work.
1: It's amazing what things come, even when you unplug, I mean, other ideas and things come to you because when you're, like, stuck in it all day, every day, like, you don't allow your creative brain to do what it can do. So when you unplug, it's just amazing what things come to mind. And yes, I mean, not only have I taken more time off I ever have, you know, my revenue has almost tripled since I've been in the program and, and it's not stopping there.
0: And your kids must love the extra dad time. So that's, yeah. always, that's always yeah. a plus.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: All right. So your gig, your biggest guilty pleasure, biggest guilty pleasure that I spend a lot of money on, but you know what? It's my guilty pleasure and I wouldn't have it any other way.
1: I don't know if I should even admit this out loud.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you definitely have to tell me what this is.
1: <laughs> yeah. So for me, it's probably shoes.
0: <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Okay. I'm kind of a shoe
1: junkie. Um, you gotta
0: write about that. It's always like a female thing. You know, women always get a lot of blame for being shoe obsessed. But uh, perhaps there are more men out there who uh, share our appreciation.
1: Yeah. I love shoes.
0: What kind of shoes? Sneakers?
1: Um, I mean, for example, I think I have like seven or eight pair of like Nike Freeze. I just really like Nike Freeze. <laughs> <laughs> uh, every color for every season. Um, and so, just, I like a lot of casual shoes. I mean, I don't have a lot of dress shoes. I mean, I have maybe four or five pair of dress shoes. I don't know if that's a lot or uh, maybe it is a lot. I don't know. But, so then um, is it hard
0: to tell your sons, no, we can't get you this new pair of sneakers? Cause-
1: that is that is a struggle like you don't even know because, you know, not to go off topic, but I was six years old before I got my first pair of Nikes and they were Air Jordans. So I was in six, I'm not six years, I was in sixth grade. Oh,
0: six, I was like six, that's pretty yeah. good.
1: Yeah, it was pretty good. No, I was in sixth grade before I got my first pair of Nike shoes. Before that, we always went to pay less. Yeah. And now my four uh-huh. year old has had a pair of Under Armour Nike shoes since he was like three. Oh my god! And my eight-year-old, like that's all—that's all he knows—is Under Armour, and so that's going to be the struggle for me as they get older—is making them appreciate what they have. Yeah. You know, this is Daddy can go buy this stuff because I've worked my butt off. So that's—that's that's something my wife and I we keep talking about—is you know we, they will work. Like they will have a job whenever they get old enough. Like you know they're gonna like I make my son do chores and it, you know they'll get more responsible as they get older. Um, but yeah, that's a something I'm looking forward to as a parent.
0: Well, now that explains why you are binging on sneakers as an adult. (laughs) That's
1: Um, right.
0: (laughs) One thing I wish I had known about money growing up is?
1: Definitely the power of compounding interest. You know, Mm -hmm. I was very fortunate to start in my, you know, in my early 20s, but man, like I was working since I was 16, so I could have started in theory investing, you know, like when I was still in high school. Um, And if I would have known a little bit more of how powerful that growth could have been. Yeah.
0: When I donate money, I like to give to blank because? Um, We usually just
1: give to our church um, Mm -hmm. just because their church has been very good to us. Uh, My wife and I, our our marriage has grown so much uh, the more that we've invested time into the church. So that's definitely where it would go.
0: And last but not least, I'm Jeff Rose, and I'm so money because?
1: You know, I read this. I was like, how do I answer this? (laughs) Um, You know, but I read this, and I I keep— thinking one of my favorite movies, uh, his swingers with Vince Vaughn and uh, John Vabro. you know, like, I'm so money, baby. You're so money. Don't even know it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, I'm so money because I know my finances. Mm-hmm. I know what's going on. Like I know roughly what my credit score is. I know how much I have my savings. I know how much, you know, where my investments are. You know, we talked about complacency earlier where a lot of times people have no clue what they're doing with their money at all. So I'm so money because I know what's going on with my financial situation.
0: Well, I would agree with that. Thank you so much, Jeff Rose, for joining us. Everyone check out Jeff Rose, goodfinancialsense.com and a million other uh, platforms. And we look forward to following your career and seeing it flourish even more. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Jeff Rose, his website is goodfinancialsense.com and he's on Twitter at jjeffrose. We've got all this information at somoneypodcast.com where you can also get the transcript and comments from this episode and all previous episodes. And there you can also click on Ask Farnoosh and ask me a question. Every Saturday and Sunday, I turn the tables and make the show all about your questions. So if you've got something on your mind about money or work, uh, parenting, life, anything, shoot it my way and I will try to give it my best answer over the weekend. And if you'd like to connect with me one-on-one for a 15-minute voice-to-voice session Uh, leave a review on iTunes uh, because every Saturday at the top of the show I select one new reviewer uh, to receive a free 15 minute money session with me so, if this is something that you are curious about and would like, uh, please leave a review. It would mean the world to me to have your review. And I would like to pay you back uh, somehow, some way, hopefully by connecting with you on uh, Skype and having a, a little chit chat, a little coffee time with you about money. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Hope to see you right back here tomorrow. And in the meantime, hope your day is so money.